second message today, Mr. Steve Andrews. Well, greetings, brethren. It's indeed a great blessing to be here on the Lord's holy day of unleavened bread, the last day of unleavened bread. Uh, I'm thankful to be here today, too. Uh, if I sound a little scratchy, it's because I've spent almost a week with this, whatever it is, it hit me this uh, last, um, the first holy day. And I'm thankful to, to be able to, to be over it almost. And uh, it was interesting, on the day of, as, as we approaching the end of the holy days and the end of the days of unleavened bread, as we, you know, as Ben mentions, we look forward to the uh, Pentecost and we start counting down to that. Um, we look forward to that the, you know, this, the symbolism of the, of the unleavened bread um, ends tonight at sundown. I was reminded today of something very interesting. My wife makes a very good unleavened bread. She makes it with um, oats and um, now we have to have gluten-free flour, but it used to be with flour and uh, brown sugar and all the good things and it's really tasty and she cooks it up and cooks and of course with all the kids, so I don't know how many plates every day that she made, but it was a bunch. She brought me in a little piece to eat as you're supposed to eat unleavened bread during the days of unleavened bread and I kind of looked at her strangely and she looked at me and I'm like what are you saying? Are you through eating unleavened bread? Then she mentioned the Israelites. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and ate manna. We only have to eat unleavened bread for seven days. And it's a blessing to understand the meaning behind it. So we should not complain. Should not feel bad. Should be thankful that we can participate in the days of unleavened bread. And it just reminded me sometimes how human we really are. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy, the 32nd chapter, verse 41, God says, I'll render vengeance to my enemies and I will reward them that hate me. Skipping back a verse, he says, to me belongs vengeance. So, the slaver Pharaoh, who made the children of Israel's lives bitter with hard bondage, and made them serve him with rigor, was to receive the vengeance of the Lord. Justice was to be carried out. And we find that in Exodus, the 14th chapter. As was alluded to in the offering message, this was their stopping spot on the last day of unleavened bread. And God had a great intention for the children of Israel. 
It's a very fascinating scenario as he brings them into a place in which they cannot escape. As they say, between a rock and a hard place. It was actually between two rocks and a, and a sea that they could not escape. And God had already told Moses what he was going to do. He already had that laid out. And then he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And it was interesting how much different it was than the Ten Commandments. <laughs> because God was going to get vengeance, total vengeance. He wasn't going to let that Pharaoh escape because he wasn't a yield bringer. <laughs> Verse 5, and it was told king of Egypt that the people fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? You've got to remember that this whole nation was about destroyed. There wasn't much left of Egypt, except for an army that we see that's fairly impressive. He made ready his chariots and took his people with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots. 600 chariots. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And how that works out in the scenario that's going to come up. I've been thinking about it. It's very interesting. And all the chariots of Egypt captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with a high hand. But the Egyptians pursued after them and all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamping by the sea besides Pi-Hai-Hiroth before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Because there, is, there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore have you dealt with us, with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we have told that that we did tell you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. This pattern of the Israelites was very consistent throughout the 40 years. As they would find a challenge and they would complain. And they would come up with some complaint towards Moses and towards God. And God would hear them, and he would be very upset with what they were saying. Now understand what they had just come out of. Now, Egypt was extremely pagan. Their God was Ra, the sun god. And they had all kinds of various things that they worship. From the Nile River that God turned into blood, to the flies, to the fleas, to everything that creeped and crawled, 
they had so many deities that they worshipped, and they were so pagan, and their practices were so ungodly and so idolatrous. What a slap in the face of God who had, with all the power that he had, had brought them out of that paganism, of idolatry, and brought them to this situation where they were at to show them the power one final time, to show them his power and to get vengeance upon that slaver Pharaoh. And Moses said to the people, Fear you not. Stand still. You know, they were able to actually see this happen. They were actually able to observe all that happened. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. You won't have to do anything. You won't have to do a thing. God will take care of them. The Lord said to Moses, Wherefore cry you to me, speak to the children of Israel, that they go forward. But lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go over on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. And I will get me honor upon Pharaoh, and upon all his hosts, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten me honor upon Pharaoh, upon his chariots, and upon his horsemen. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went be behind them in the pillar of the cloud, and went before them, before their face, and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel, and it was a cloud of darkness to them, but it gave light to the, to the night to those so that, <clears throat> that one came not near the other. So this was probably like that darkness that God set upon Egypt. It was so dark they couldn't move. They couldn't, they couldn't move from that position that they were in because they could not see anything. God gave light to the Israelites as they were standing there at that juncture ready to go across the, the Red Sea. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground and the waters were a wall on them on, onto the right hand and onto the left. And it's kind of interesting, I was thinking about the scenario, how the physics worked out. <laughs> All of us know that if you put a, a dam on a river or uh, you know someplace, that the upstream side builds back up and the downstream side goes away. You know, I mean, it just flows on around. But God actually divided it, and I thought maybe there was a you know some kind of a. But I looked up the words, and it actually says it divided betwixt the waters. 
Now understand there's three states of water. At 12, uh, 212 degrees, it, it starts turning to steam. From 212 down to 32, it stays liquid. And from 32 degrees on down, colder, it starts freezing. Three states of water. Now God actually made it so that when they walked through, they could look on the right-hand side and on the left-hand side, and they were able to see the water. They were able to see what was on both sides as they walked through. Did God create a fourth stage, or did he make force fields that kept the water in place? That's an interesting question. I have no answer. I just was thinking about it. Because you know, if he made a fourth stage like Jello, it would all stay in one place and it wouldn't move. But that water is moving, so we're either flooding those people back behind, or we've stopped everything. God has all the power in the world to do whatever he wants to do to bring his children to salvation. All the power to bring his children to salvation. <laughs> the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, even all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, here presents another interesting problem. Not a problem for God, but just an interesting problem for, to think about. 600 chariots. If they were 10 wide, that's, a, that's really wide, there would have been 60 rows of them. Five wide, there would have been 120 of them. There would have had to have been a very, very, very broad area for, for these chariots to have gone through. God opened it up so that all of them, every one of them, could get a position so that he could bring salvation to the children of Israel. And that he could bring vengeance upon the slaver Pharaoh. And it came to pass that in the morning, watch, the Lord looked to the host of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and the cloud and troubled the host of the Egyptians. And I've always been tickled by this little part here as they're racing down to try to destroy the Israelites. And as he looked down, he took the wheels off the chariots. <laughs> Can you imagine? 600 chariots? With all the wheels, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, bang, no wheels. And all these guys are out there driving these, these horses around and trying to get away from them. And they're going this way and going that way. And what do they say? I think we ought to turn around and go back. <laughs> he says, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may, be, may come again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their, and their horsemen. And Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its strength. 
when the morning appeared and the Egyptians fled against it, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of the Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. Pharaoh did not escape. He was not Yule Brenner. He did not escape. And in fact, I suspect he was the first one out there. He was leading his men. He was leading the charge to go to get the Israelites. But the children of Israel walked upon dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on the left hand. And the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Unfortunately, it didn't last very long. They traveled to a little place called Mara, and it was bitter, and they murmured against Moses, asking, what shall we drink? And then they traveled a little ways, and you can, as Lawrence has gone through all of these, I'm not going to go through this. I just wanted to mention these two. They traveled to a place where they said they were complaining because they didn't have anything to eat even though they were very wealthy from coming out of uh, the Egyptians. And I apologize for the uh, runny nose today. That's usually what happens and when you're, you're, you're about over this kind of stuff. They, uh, they were very wealthy. They probably had a lot of gold, silver. You know, they, they were able to, to embellish the tabernacle with some most beautiful things that the Egyptians had given them as they had exited out of Egypt. They had a lot of cattle. But they murmured and God gave them quail to eat and what's it? What's it? They didn't know what it was. They didn't have the foggiest idea of what it was. It just showed up. It came with the dew. God gave them a, the most specific instructions to pick that stuff up six days. Don't leave it overnight because it'll spoil. And on that sixth day, they could pick up two, two portions, and it would not spoil because it we keep it on the Sabbath. There's so many interesting places that they went as they traveled those 40 years before they crossed the Jordan River. But there's not enough time to cover all that. What I want to cover today is a spiritual part of this that we can look at. Let's go to 1 Corinthians because Paul goes back to this time. He goes back and he talks about this particular time that Israel came out 
of Egypt. And it's in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. He says, Moreover, brethren, I would not have that you should be ignorant. I don't want you all to be ignorant about what, what happened. How that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And we're all baptized to Moses in the, in the cloud and in the sea. We just read that. We just read all about that. And did eat of the same spiritual meat. Well, they talked about that manna. And they did drink that same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, and this was the rub, this is what happened. With many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That generation, that older generation, as we heard in the sermon, including Aaron and Miriam and Moses, did not make it into the promised land. They died in the wilderness because it wasn't, and it was God's desire that his children would take that step when he gave it to them, and they refused. Remember, they came right up there. They came to that point, and they refused to go in. And so God says, okay, now you're going to wander in the wilderness. You're going to wander in the wilderness, and this generation is going to die in the wilderness. They tried to go into the promised land, and it didn't work. They were stuck. They had to go and wander in the wilderness. Now these things were our example to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they lusted after. And if you read all of the things that they got into, even at that beautiful mount where God spoke to them, when Moses went up on the mount, they began to sin. Neither be you idolaters, or some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur you, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. It seemed like it was just one incident after another. God is no respecter of persons, even with the children of Israel that he loved and took care of and wanted to, to bring into the promised land. He corrected them, sometimes very harshly. Now, all these things happened to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, that there are our instruction, so that we go back and we read them so that when we go before God, we, we don't murmur, we don't complain. We're thankful that God has given us this way of life. <laughs> when they first came out and they were sitting there and they said, oh, I wish we'd just go back to Egypt. That's just like us saying, oh, I, I think 
I would have really loved to have been there at the, at, at the, um, in Washington, D.C. for that egg roll. <laughs> How foolish is that egg roll? How idiotic. Pagan. It comes from paganism. It has nothing to do. It's not in the Bible, unless it talks about idolatry and Ashtaroth. The word Easter means in, is a misprint. Brethren, the practices of this world, they're blind. They don't see. They can't understand that what they're doing is an abomination to God. It's an idolatrous abomination to God. And he hates it. He's offended by it. But he has a purpose and a plan for all of mankind, and for some reason he's working that out. We don't know all those reasons, but we continue on. Sometimes it, especially after I've taken and kept God's holy days for so long, I get a little, I get a little nervous that a nation continues in the ways that they're continuing and thumbing their nose at God, as they do. He says, Wherefore let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. There is no temptation taking you, but such is common to men. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with that temptation also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. A lot of temptations come upon us, but God is with us. If you don't reject him, he will be with you. He says, Wherefore, my, deliver, uh, my dearly beloved, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. Don't participate in the idolatrous things that go on in this world. Don't go back into them. You're here keeping this holy day set apart by God for a tremendous and wonderful purpose and plan. Keeping those days of unleavened bread for seven days. Taking in that perfect unleavened Jesus Christ. Which what, what, what it represents. And you becoming perfect. Fully mature to the stature and fullness of Jesus Christ. Hebrews the third chapter. Beginning in verse 5. Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken afterward. But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we. We are Christ's house. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing, the hope firm to the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, the day of temptation in the wilderness. See, they go back. They review. That's what's important. They go back to those original scenarios and scenes. That's why we review them year after year after year. We look, look at that. Harden not your hearts, as in that temptation in the wilderness. 
when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in the departing from the living God. I think all of us are familiar with Hebrews 11, verse 6. It says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He's a rewarder of those that diligently look to him and seek him. But exhort one another daily while it is today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We're very familiar with this one too in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. This fits in with our holy day, days of unleavened bread understanding. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. He says, Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. Even, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened of sincerity and truth. Unleavened of sincerity and truth. That's, that's what this is all about. Replacing the sins of our life, the sins that so easily beset us, with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteous life of Jesus Christ. Now going back to Hebrews. If we remain partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, verse 14. While it said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit, however, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom he was grieved forty years, was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest, but them that believed not? You know, see, that's the whole point. We must believe. We must have faith that what God is doing in our life is progressing to the kingdom of God and eternal life. Never doubt. Never doubt. They doubted. They saw. They were there. They saw the miracles. They saw all that happened. And they doubted. Would we doubt? Would we become a part of that mob that doubted? Oh, brethren, I hope not. You know, I don't, I, I, I can't answer for being in that congregation. All I can answer is for what we're doing today. That we have to have that faith that what God is doing in us will take us into the kingdom of God. And to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left to us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For to us was the gospel preached as well as to them. 
But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into his rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. He had set this up from the foundation of the world. He had a plan. He had it all set out. For he spoke in a certain place in the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest on the seventh day from all his works. You see, it goes back even to the Sabbath, the holy days, the Sabbath. All of these are connected. They're all part of the plan of God. And they all have meaning. And they're all with purpose. And they all point to the kingdom of God. Picking back up here, and let's read that again in verse 4. He spoke in a certain place on the seventh day in this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. In this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they whom it was first preached enter not in because of unbelief. It's interesting that it was preached to them. And not only that, but they had manna to teach them every day of the week and on the Sabbath what they were supposed to be doing. And again, he limits a certain day, saying in David today, after so long a time, as it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. That seems to be a reoccurring theme here. Don't harden your hearts to what God is teaching you. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, whatever is being preached, don't harden your heart. Don't make it impossible for God to get through to you, to teach you, to help you to understand his word. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he have, and that word really actually has Joshua, because Joshua took them into the promised land. That was a little bit before this. Joshua had given them rest. Then would he not have afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest to the people of God. It's coming, brethren. It's a millennial rest. It's part of the plan of God. For he that's entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. He says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. It's an interesting scenario that we have in that book of Hebrews. He's trying to help us to understand the importance of what went on in the wilderness, and how they rejected God even though God was with them, they could see the Shekinah glory right there. When it came down, they could see it. And they rejected Him. And God was sore displeased with the children of Israel. Sore displeased with them. Especially that first generation that refused to go into the Promised Land. For the word of God is quick, verse 12, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 
You think you may be getting away with something? Uh-uh. Remember what David said. He says, I can't go anywhere. I can't go anywhere. But you don't know what I'm doing. You read my heart. You look deep inside of me and you know me. You know who I am. You know my sins. You know my good parts or things. You know, sometimes there's good things about us. And God probably is pleased about that. We have good traits. But we also have sins. We have hidden sins. And that's what the days of unleavened bread are about. Putting those hidden sins out. Changing our life. Becoming different. Being more like Jesus Christ. Naked. Open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. This is the greatest thing, brethren. This is so wonderful that has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now it's interesting, even though the word Jesus is a Greek word, it does actually mean, like Joshua, which is in the Hebrew, Yeshua, which actually comes out, Yahweh or Jehovah saves. Isn't that interesting? The salvation of the Lord. The salvation of the Lord and Jesus Christ. In John, the fourth chapter, let's look at some things that Jesus said. Because it's very important that we have two very, two things. Jesus said that, they would, that the Father and Him would come and dwell in us and that we were to put something on. Jesus Christ on. Let's read those scriptures. In John, the fourth chapter, and beginning in verse 7, there comes a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus says to her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone into the city to buy meat. And said the woman of Samaria to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman, and that's one downer, of Samaria? And that's the second downer. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me to drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. Living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From where then have you that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be a well 
shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He's talking about the Holy Spirit that flows like water through us, that is refreshing the Spirit in us. And when Christ went to the Father, he gave the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was then given in, to many, many thousands. We don't know. Almost 2,000 years ago, as Jesus went to the Father, how many have been called? I hope it's in the millions. I hope there's been millions that have called, that have answered the call and come to this truth and this way of life. And that Spirit has flowed in them. And that the Father and the Son has dwelt in them and made their tabernacle and their dwelling place in them. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. It's interesting <laughs> how he approached this woman. Go call your husband to come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. <laughs> Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you're now with is not your husband, and that you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship? Looking past the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, Jesus made this prophecy. Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him shall worship him in spirit and truth. Anywhere, brethren, anywhere in the world we can worship the Father. We have a high priest that sits at the right hand of, the, of God, and we can worship the Father at any time. We could be hanging upside down <laughs> on a cliff somewhere and we could pray for deliverance. We could be in our sick bed and we could pray for deliverance. We could be anywhere and pray to God at any time. We don't have to go to the temple. We don't have to ask a priest. We go to the high priest who sits at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ. These are wonderful, tremendous words. The living water. John, the sixth chapter now. John 6, beginning in verse 31. They were gathered around there and they said, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread. For the bread of God is He which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. In verse 35, He says, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. Those are Jesus' words. He's calling us to Him. And if we're His, He wants us to stay close. That proximity. 
24-7. He dwells with inside of us. <laughs> Can't get much closer than that. Sometimes we reject him and we don't do the things we should. But he's always calling us back to him. He's always calling us back. Remember, God was extremely patient with the Israelites. I mean, they murmured and they cried and they complained and they wanted to go back to Egypt so many times. And he was so patient with them. And if it hadn't been for that first generation rejecting the promised land, they would have gone into the promised land right then. But God brought that second generation, those younger ones, 20 and younger, and Joshua and Caleb into that promised land. Brought them into that promised land and gave them that land. How much more is he going to do for the ones he calls his sons, his daughters that he loves? Who reside, whose spirit resides inside of us. I'm the bread of life. He that comes to me shall not hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which he sent me, that all which he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. A promise from Jesus Christ. No matter if we live to the day that we die, the Christ's promise is there that we shall be resurrected and we shall be with him. It's a part of the promise of the Bible. These are internal things that you need to inculcate deeply with inside of your spiritual self. In Romans, the 13th chapter, there's something else that we need on the external part of us. And I thought this was interesting. Romans 13, beginning of verse 11. And that knowing the time that now is at night... Uh, oops, I'm the wrong one. Romans 11. I'll get there. Beginning of verse 11. Well, <laughs> yeah, I was in the right place. Yeah, Romans 13. And that knowing the time that now is a high, a high time to wake out of the sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than we, when we believe. Now is our salvation. I mean, all of us understand that we are very fragile people. It doesn't take much. And we can die at any time. Car accident, heart attacks, many different things could come upon us. The Bible warns us that we need to be ready at any time for the return of Jesus Christ or from that day that we might lay down our life and, and wait for Christ to return in the, in the grave. He says that that time is closer. 
The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not rioting and drunkenness, not in um, chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy. But he says, put on. It's like a vestment. Put it on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. When we walk in society, we are the example of Jesus Christ walking on this earth. We must show forth that example on our daily lives. We put on Jesus Christ externally as well as internally. In Galatians 3, Paul says essentially the same thing, but a little differently. Galatians 3 and verse 26 through 29. But after the faith has come, we are no longer of the schoolmaster, for you are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You put on Jesus Christ, just like a vestment, just like clothes. You have Jesus Christ as part of your life. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You're all one together in Christ Jesus. Jesus breaks all barriers. All barriers. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. The kingdom of God. Heirs to all that God has set forth. One last scripture. One last set of scriptures here. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, beginning in 24. And then you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. That's Jesus Christ. Because God, because Christ was righteous and he was truly holy. So we're to put on that new man just like Christ. We're to have that in our life. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one, to another, of, uh, one of another. Be you angry, sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. These are instructions from Paul. Inspired by the Holy Spirit because of the things that may have been going on around him. But also very, very succinct for the time that we live in today. Never give place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. Don't let him have a part in your life. You know, when we, when we dabble in the, the devil's things, we become more and more like him. When we, when we become, a, when we dedicate our life to Jesus Christ and live our life as Christ lived it, we become more and more like him. And that's the way, way we want to be. Let him that stole steal no more, but, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needs. Let no corrupt communication, that is, let your speech be wholesome, 
Let it be good speech. Let it be without explicatives. Proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of the edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be you kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Brethren, this is the last day of the Days of Unleavened Bread. The last day of the Days of Unleavened Bread. The seventh day. We have put unleavened bread in us. Just like the Bible tells us to put Christ in us on a daily basis. To live as Christ lived. God's holy days don't, don't quit. Just as was mentioned. Now we look forward to Pentecost as we count down to those days. Then we look to trumpets. Then we look to atonement. Then we look to tabernacles on the last great day. And if we're still alive, we come back to the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. But it's all for the plan of God, brethren. It's all for the glory of God that we do these things on a yearly basis, that we give ourselves over to what God is teaching us in His Word. Go back. Study those examples. Learn from God's Word. Don't forget the meaning and purpose of the Days of Unleavened Bread, of the Passover Lamb that sacrificed for you, and the days that are coming up. Learn from them. It's all part of what God is doing in our life to bring us into the kingdom of God.